Believe it or not, um, we get together, the teaching team uh, gets together for meetings and actually talk about what we're doing uh, <laughs> once in a while. And, and, and one of the things we, we talk about are subjects for these talks we give in the evenings. We kind of toss out ideas and sort of, we do think about it. I was uh, at a recent meeting. I was I was kind of waffling on what I was going to talk about, and uh, a couple of my colleagues uh, reminded me that I had had said, "Well, one one night I might just sit here and watch the intention to speak arise and pass, and <laughs> and and have a, a talk of just ambient sound for a while till I rang the bell." and And they showed a lot of uh, interest in that possibility, <laughs> and I. I, I try not to read too much into that. <laughs> um, I wasn't sure quite how to feel about it. Uh, there was a lot of encouragement. Earlier today, I was speaking to one of my colleagues, and I was kind of lamenting or pointing out the fact that I, I felt like often some of my best offerings in teaching come during individual meetings. and and how sometimes I felt like there, there wasn't that much really left over for the talks, you know, it didn't, didn't come out there. Um, I'm pretty sure this morning I said something absolutely brilliant <laughs> in one of the meetings. I mean, really profound, something that you all should hear and something really actually essential for you all to hear, but I have no idea what it was. <laughs> and. I have no idea if the person I was talking to saw it that way. (laughs) Maybe there's something about not trusting our perceptions (laughs) too much in that. Over these past weeks, at different times and different ways, we've we've spoken about um, the understanding of dukkha, teachings on dukkha, and the way that uh, a meaningful relationship to this, an understanding of dukkha, the causes, the release from dukkha, as suffering, stress in our lives, is is critical to our practice, to our understanding as we walk this path. And, and beneath any individual story that any of a, one of us might have or tell, there is this quality of unease or dis-ease or dissatisfaction. Sometimes it can be subtle, sometimes it's very, um, very strongly manifesting uh, that comes in our life. It, it pervades life at times, a kind of times of struggle, confusion, stress, at least at times. And sometimes times, there's times when life brings us into contact with true deep suffering. We see it in our own minds and hearts or in the world around us. And I think if this connection and, and opening to this truth is to lead to a real uh, deep and true spiritual search, there's a need to really uh, come into contact with, to touch the breadth and depth of this kind of insecurity that this points to in our lives, that underlies this. You know, life, by its nature, life is, has this uh, flawed or imperfect nature in and it's not this a pessimistic view that life is just suffering. You know, sometimes Buddhism gets this rap as a downer religion, life is suffering. It's misinterpreted, the teachings on, on dukkha. We have happy times and pleasant experiences for sure. This is uh, certain for, for us, this comes. But, but if we take a realistic view of the human condition, we see that it's a mix and 
pleasant and unpleasant and joy and sorrow. This is just how life unfolds. This is what comes to us on this plane. This is the nature of samsaric existence, you could say. And so these qualities of of unreliability or insecurity, they characterize uh, dukkha. One level of dukkha is characterized by this unreliability, insecurity that pervades all experience, all conditioned experience, pleasant or unpleasant, it doesn't have to do with that. It's a kind of uh, inner anxiety that arises at times and is produced by, related directly to, the constantly changing nature of things. Brian spoke about uh, this a lot in his talk on impermanence. Pleasant experiences don't last as long as we want them to. Unpleasant ones seem to stay longer than we wish, than we'd like. And there's this unsatisfactoriness that comes because of this, due to the fact that things are constantly changing and largely out of our direct control. We have some ability to influence things, but mostly it's out of our direct control. Reminded me of, of when I first came to uh, this practice in a, in a real dedicated way. And at that time I was living in San Francisco and I had, I had a, a good interesting job. I had interesting people I was working with. I used to build exhibits. I was making giant bugs and dinosaurs and stuff for a museum. And I lived in a, in a great old fire station in the city. I had a cool motorcycle. At a high, high, highly cool, my coolness quotient was really high back then. It was, it was striking, it was important to me, and it was, I had it really down in a certain way. I've, there's been this slow de- devolution over time. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of sad. Anyway, you know, there was nothing, it was, a, I'd put together a pretty good life, you know, and good friends and lots of, um, you know, interesting experiences and time to travel. And, uh, you know, from the outside, no, nothing really wrong. But I remember times of feeling the sense of, of not knowing what I could turn to. I felt like I had tried everything over the course of my life, I'd done so many th- different things and um, I felt like I'd tried it all and, and, and it was kind of like, well, is this it? I felt this sort of despair there, you know, nothing seemed to produce lasting happiness and there was this, this constant sort of uh, ache in that. I was tasting dukkha, this unreliability, this, this uh, unsatisfactory nature of things. And you know, even though we know better, we hold out hope that we're going to be able to get life to be just the way we like it and want it to be. And, and there's a lot of uh, information out there that sort of seems to be trying to convince us that this, this should be possible if we had our act together. And, and usually it, the key to it is something we need to get that we don't have. You know, it's like we're supposed to be able to live like the people in the TV commercial and, and, and be just, be happy. They're so happy. And they're so good looking too. <laughs> you know, we're supposed to be able to not only be that happy, but look that good. You know, and as though this somehow should be possible for us. But we can't get it to only be the way we want it to be no matter how hard we try. And this doesn't mean that we, we don't try to live as well as we can. We do. We do really try to, to live the dance of a life with as much grace and integrity as possible. We bring us what we can to that. And we don't fall into resignation or despair. But at the same time, we need to really open to this unreliability, this insecurity of dukkha, because it opens the door to the practice. It's where the Buddha started. It's where we have to start. Because until we open to it, really, in a real way, we're always going to be looking for a way out. We'll be turning to that which, by its very nature, is unreliable and incapable 
of bringing any kind of lasting happiness. So opening to dukkha leads us to seek that which might be reliable as a strategy for finding happiness. Ajahn Chah put it this way, in Dhamma practice, we begin with the truth of dukkha, the pervasive unsatisfactoriness of existence. But as soon as we experience this, we lose heart. We don't want to look at it. Dukkha is really the truth, but we want to get around it somehow. But if we aren't willing to look at dukkha, we will never understand dukkha, no matter how many births we go through. Dukkha is a noble truth. If we allow ourselves to face it, then we will start to seek a way out of it. If we are trying to go somewhere and the road is blocked, we will think about how to make a pathway. In an earlier talk, Rebecca spoke about uh, the Buddha's uh, teaching on dependent origination or dependent co-arising, Paticca Samuppada in Pali. And she, she took a portion of that chain of causal links, 12 links in the classical teaching that begin with ignorance and lead through a chain of cause and effect to suffering, shows how that arises. There's another teaching that sometimes is called transcendent dependent origination. It's an extension to a kind of following on from the, the other teaching it begins in a way, you could say it begins with dukkha. It starts where the other one leaves off and ex- extends what happens from there. And in this uh, chain of causal links culminating in liberation, dukkha is seen as the causative factor for the arising of faith or confidence. Pali word sadha and Bhante spoke about sadha, faith or confidence in his Uh, recent talks about um, the five spiritual faculties, spiritual powers and faculties. So dukkha is seen as, as as causing or leading to the arising of faith and faith then through a a chain of links, faith leading to joy, joy leading to a deep, uh, deep kind of interest to a kind of rapture, tranquility, happiness concentration, knowledge and vision of the way things are, leading to disenchantment, dispassion, emancipation, and uprooting or destruction of the defilements of mind, the defilements that bind us to suffering. So in this teaching, opening to dukkha then is seen as the start, opening to this truth so we see the need to do something, And then this quality of faith arises, but we need to encounter something, get a sense of something that might be a possibility. We need to uh, encounter something that points to a possibility for a deeper or greater kind of understanding. So at that time when I was living in San Francisco, one of my business partners used to go off to a, a silent meditation retreat once or twice a year and used to tease her that she was going off to silence camp. And uh, I decided I wanted to learn how to meditate. And she said, well, okay, sign up for this 10-day retreat. It'd be a good place to learn. So I went to a 10-day retreat, and I, had, I hadn't meditated for even a second. Well, and one day I said, could you kind of tell me a little bit? And she said, well, breathe in, breathe out. <laughs> I think she said something like, I don't know, Anyway, a little more than that. And I tried it for a few minutes once when we went for a walk. (laughs) That was about it. (laughs) So I didn't know what I was doing. And I went to this retreat and my friend said, promise me you'll stay for three days. She was fairly certain I would, good chance I would bolt (laughs) and leave and run away. And I thought about leaving every day more than once, for sure. You know, it wasn't easy. You know, the teachers did not look like my idea of great enlightened masters. And it was, it was kind of disappointing. They actually looked a lot like me. <laughs> and, you know, they didn't come floating into the meditation hall, which would have been nice, and no long flowing robes or 
any of that stuff that, yeah, we should work on our, our look up here. <laughs> I think we're mi- missing something. <laughs> but they seemed, they seemed to, something kept me there. Once a day, there was just enough to keep me there. You know, and, and there was this sense of, um, I felt like they were telling me the truth in some way, or at least pointing to something true. And it wasn't something that I had to believe. I didn't have to accept something. I didn't say, oh, here, believe in this. They, but, but there was something that I could explore. It was something I could undertake on my own and look in my own mind and heart. And, and uh, there was this sense of possibility that there was something real there that I could discover for myself. And, and it seemed like this real possibility for a way out of the confusion and struggle that I felt at times in my life. And, and the teachers sh- seemed to show a real confidence in what they were talking about a confidence in the practice that it actually um, seemed to have brought benefit to them. They seemed uh, to have benefited very directly. You know, they, 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 it came through them in a way that beyond any words that were said. And um, I sensed, well, if it's possible for them, it might be possible for me. And, and I, I've, in a way you could say that I borrowed some of their confidence I borrowed enough to keep me going for that retreat. And, um, and by the end of that retreat, I felt like I had tasted some of that sense of possibility very directly for myself. And it seemed to be in very much in spite of, my, in spite of myself. I was, was not then and never have been a stellar yogi. And, and it seemed like just strong medicine that kind of worked. I just made what effort I was able to make. And so there's this kind of bright faith, this bright faith or confidence that, that arises and, and the sense of, um, for me it was like, yes, okay, I could, I could actually maybe do this. I might be able to walk uh, on this path. There's enough confidence or faith where, where one feels that one can take the next step, whatever it might be. I didn't know what it would be. And certainly the, the way my life went from that time was nothing I would have anticipated. I came at a good time and my whole life changed dramatically after that. But we have this, this enough, uh, enough initial bright kind of faith that we can take the next step. Martin Luther King Jr. once said that faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. That first initial step. There's one place in one of the texts where uh, it describes faith in, uh, with some interesting images. It said, faith is a confidence that allows us to enter into something unknown or set out across something unknown. And there's an image uh, setting out to cross an area that's been flooded, a flooded terrain. We set forth, we have enough trust to say, okay, I can set forth across this, to cross this area. And it also gives us an image of faith being regarded as a hand that takes hold of profitable things useful things, takes hold of those things that support our well-being, that which leads to understanding. And it also likens faith to a water-clearing gem or water-clearing jewel. There's this image at that time, in ancient times, of there being a gem or jewel that had the capacity to settle out impurities and clarify water. And faith clarifies our priorities in life, helps us to see what's important, what matters. And, and through this process gives us confidence to uh, begin to set out this initial kind of faith. So it's like a kind of energy that seeks out what's wholesome, useful, profitable, clarifies what's worth doing, and actually takes hold of this, uses this energy so that we set forth and we begin to, for example, engage with the practice directly. 
So we could say that it combines uh, some kind of wholesome yearning for freedom or understanding or whatever words we might choose to use. This wholesome yearning, dhammachanda, desire for liberation, with a kind of aspiration or determination to actually see if we can fulfill that, see if we can do something about it, bringing this aspiration together with a kind of confidence or trust that we might be able to set out on a journey and do something, maybe find some stability in the face of all the changes that come in life and all the ups and downs, find some balance with that. And we've talked a lot about this idea of aspiration and contrasted it with expectation. I think it's important to have a realistic way to connect with aspiration as a kind of possibility, a potential for us. Not maybe as a fixed goal, but certainly as a kind of direction that we uh, steer in, like a compass heading. You know, if we hold it in that way, it's, a, it's an aspiration that we hold as a direction that we steer in. Then the dynamic process of what we undergo in the, and what we see in the practice is allowed to be there. And, and we see what leads in the direction of ease, peace, freedom, away from suffering, towards happiness. We steer that way. We make that our compass heading. It may, it may turn and move and flow, but it's heading in that direction. And we see also what leads to suffering, what leads away from ease, away from happiness in our own lives, in the world, in broad ways, and we steer away from that. Steer towards happiness, away from suffering. Sometimes initially faith arises in regard to a teacher. You know, we may read about or or even be lucky enough to meet famous yogis, practitioners we read about. Maybe we we have occasion to spend time uh, with someone like His Holiness the Dalai Lama, or we hear stories about Deepama, someone like that, and they are so inspiring, these figures, their lives, and, and the sort of kindness and uh, confidence and devotion that they, and wisdom that they just seem to embody. You know, seem like they, they show us the way because they've walked the path. And so we may draw confidence from inspiring teachers or, or teachings that we read that inspire us and point to this possibility. And then we, we start to see over time that our own experience begins to parallel what we read about or, or see in others. We see, well, we're walking the same path that they walked, the same journey. And it strengthens this initial bright faith. And then... Of course, we have to do the practice also. You know, we can't just just run on on that kind of initial faith. We have to engage and, and we have some inspiration and courage and sense of possibility. We take first steps, but then we, we have to find uh, sources of strength along the way that keep us going. It's not always easy, as we all know very well after these weeks on retreat here. When I left that first retreat that I've spoken about, I, I was really filled with this kind of bright faith. It was very strong in me. I was, I was very high from it in a certain way and I felt so inspired. And, and I remember noticing it wearing off and it was so disappointing to see it, it kind of going away, some of that initial um, feeling. It didn't last, I thought it should last. I didn't quite get impermanence. And, and I, I wanted to go back on retreat and get it back as soon as I could. I, I arranged to go for, I heard about IMS at that first retreat. It was in California. I heard there was a three month retreat and, and I, I, I didn't have enough, for, I didn't meet the requirements so I had to do some more. So I came and signed up for another retreat, another couple of retreats here so that I could go to the three month retreat that fall. And I thought I would just take off, you know, I'd get, I'd just be like, you know, like where I ended the first one. 
And then, uh, you know, I came and it wasn't so sweet. That next retreat, it wasn't, it was just a lot of hard work slogging it out. And uh, I just, there was at times so much doubt came up, you know, I can't do it. Clearly I'm, I don't have what it takes. You know, who am I kidding if I think I can go anywhere? You know, that came very strongly because this initial kind of bright faith can be quite tender and changing cause conditions can shake it. You know, we can borrow confidence from teachers or teachings for a while, but it only goes so far and, and it only carries us for so far and changing conditions can, can cause it to falter get swept away. And so a deeper kind of really personal confidence or faith is essential then because um, without it, we're, we're not gonna have the strength or courage to stay the course. We need to find it within our own minds and hearts. You know, and the hindrance of doubt that comes up for us at times, often we don't see it, it's very tricky. All the times here, how many times over these weeks we find ourselves wondering what, what we're doing here? What, what is this all about? What does this sitting here like this have to do with freedom or liberation? We don't see that at times. At times we feel like I can't do this. Everyone else clearly can. Everyone else is sitting like the Buddha in some way or other. And all I see in my own mind and heart is, is this wild, restless energy and mind and heart just going crazy, not doing what I want, and the body is uncomfortable and restless. And, you know, we're gonna run up against this at times, but this quality of faith that does strengthen through the process, even through these times of when doubt comes to us, it, it acts as an antidote very directly because we're going to run up against some quality of doubt, probably until we're fully enlightened, at least once in a while. And you know, there's the famous story, maybe one of us have, has told this, the story of the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment being assailed by the armies of Mara. I'm sure someone told the story already in a talk. You know, and finally, the final thing when nothing else worked, and doubt came with doubt as the last, okay, this will get the Buddha. Who do you think you are sitting here? What gives you the right? You know, and whether we've been, whether this is our first really long retreat or we've been at this for a long time, 20, 30 years, this quality of doubt may arise at times. It probably will. But our willingness to actually open to and directly touch the truth of the moment, just as it is, to bring awareness to that, to see the power of mindfulness, the power of awareness in relation to the truth of the moment, the ability to, to directly touch it, to let it in. Just that begins to strengthen qualities of faith and confidence. And it leads to a kind of deep surrender where a heartfelt kind of trust starts to emerge. It's like a, a real place of real refuge, a refuge not in changing conditions, but a refuge in a kind of inner confidence or strength where we see, okay, it's safe to rest my heart here. I can trust awareness, mindfulness. And it gives us enough strength, at least at times, it's not always there, but there are the, enough moments of it. A little bit can go a long way. I certainly have seen this. A little bit can keep me going for years. Some taste of possibility will keep, has kept me going for years at times. So then we're able to keep going, take another step. And it's a kind of deeper confidence or trust that it begins to emerge. And one of its manifestations is that it has, there's a strength of heart where we're willing to 
make mistakes and to not be perfect, to not do it perfectly. I think this is one of the greatest gifts that I have gotten over the years from this practice is uh, allowing myself to not be perfect, to not do it perfectly, whatever that my concept of that might ever be in the moment. And I've discovered that perfection is not a prerequisite for awakening. I hope you hear this. This is true. I guarantee it. It's not a prerequisite. So we find a confidence that lets us know that we cannot blow it. We can never blow it completely because we can always start again. In any moment we can begin again. That's always possible. It doesn't matter what just happened. This is great. We are golden here, folks. We can always, in any moment, we can start again. We can come back. There's a beautiful poem by uh, the third Zen patriarch. I always wonder about those Zen patriarchs. I'd ask Brian about those patriarchs. But anyway, the third one, how many were there? (laughs) I'll ask you later. (laughs) Anyway, there were at least three. (laughs) And and the third one composed a beautiful uh, verse. It's quite a long poem. It's called Verses on the Faith Mind. And in one place, there's this line that I just love. It says, he said, to live in the highest realization is to live without anxiety about non-perfection. To live in the highest realization is to live without anxiety about non-perfection. And I see this as pointing to, there's a couple things I'd like to mention. The first one is this deep acceptance of the inherently imperfect nature of conditioned existence. That's just the nature of things. And the second thing is that it points to a confidence that we allow ourselves to be who we are. We don't take it all so personally. And we let go of having to make ourselves perfect, to fix ourselves, to control everything so that we can let things unfold. We can surrender to the process and let things unfold one step at a time. This is a great gift that practice can offer us, this possibility to live without anxiety about non-perfection, especially in our own mind and heart. And over time we start to uh, open to, to touch uh, what we might call a more mature kind of bright faith, a more mature faith. And it may come at times of difficulty and challenge in our practice, in our lives. Sometimes that's where we start to connect with this, times when it's hard. It's difficult and we make it through somehow. We find a source of inner strength. We discover we're stronger than we thought we were. We find that we can trust awareness, trust mindfulness, as I've been saying. And sometimes it's good to reflect on the ways, and they might be small ways, they might seem to be larger at times, that we have overcome challenges, open to what's difficult, and, and made it through, come back to balance, been able to keep going. I think of times uh, in my own practice, there was a time very early, it was probably that first three-month retreat that I sat here during the first few months of my, my intensive or my real meditation practice. And, and one of the teachers suggested that we, that we might consider sit, making a resolve to sit for an entire sitting without moving at all, to actually make a resolve, you know, let me sit without moving at all. And so I decided to do it. I tried to time it for, yeah, it felt pretty good. And I, I made this resolve and, and the resolve was powerful. It was as though I, I couldn't move, but I thought I was gonna die. 
You know, this is one of those times when, ring the bell, ring the bell. You know, someone was talking about the other night, this, the mind screaming, ring the bell. I just the combination of physical and mental dukkha was intense. But I, the resolve was stronger. The resolve was powerful. And, and then when uh, the teacher finally, after days, did ring the bell, <laughs> I, I actually didn't move immediately. I didn't need to once the bell had rung and I could. <laughs> like I could, I didn't have to then. But I felt afterwards, I said, I can take anything. <laughs> Let me have it. I just couldn't imagine having a worse time. <laughs> now, subsequently, I have had worse times. <laughs> but it just, it gave me this kind of strength. I thought, lay it on me. I can take anything at this point. It really gave me a, a lot of strength in the in heart. And I remember the first time I went to practice in Burma and I, I had ordained, so I was wearing these robes that seemed determined to fall off. And... Um, it was very intensive, you know. The wake-up bell was at three o'clock, a little earlier than yours. And, um, you know, at times I felt like I was pushed to the edge of what I could bear in terms of physical dukkha and heat and a kind of exhaustion that I, I didn't felt like I'd never known before. And I don't want to give you the impression that, you know, this is necessary to somehow go to the edges of what we think we can bear. But, um, but then the, there was this, this making it through this and, and finding uh, a confidence and strength there. A strength that I, I didn't know I had. And we all may have stories, stories from this retreat, stories over time, not always in meditation where we've found a reserve of strength and made it through something that seemed uh, beyond our capacity at the time. We didn't know we had that much strength. And it's good to bring it to mind and reflect on it because it, it informs and uh, strengthens this sense of confidence. We can also uh, consciously um, touch into, strengthen our confidence or faith in different ways. We can look at our relationship to thoughts and thinking. You know, and we've certainly had plenty of opportunities to do this, most of us. And, and we start to see that, that the, the, this mental content of our thinking is only as real as we believe it to be. Our thoughts are only as real as, and only have the power that we give them. They arise unbidden, for the most part, we have very little control over what comes. We see that they don't necessarily reflect reality accurately at all. Sometimes this seems discouraging, but actually we see it can be a great relief because we don't have to blame ourselves for the contents. We don't have to take it personally. We start to see the inherently fleeting, empty nature of thoughts. It's just mental energy that arises and passes, it manifests, it's like effervescence. And we see that if we don't identify when, with them, we can just let them come and go. And they don't have to be a problem if we don't make them into one. They're not inherently a problem. We see that they're not something we have to struggle with or try to get rid of. We don't have to believe them because they're not always telling us the truth. We don't have to buy into them, create that universe and then inhabit it. We can let them come and go. And so in different ways, over time through our practice, we start to discover uh, what's sometimes called verified faith, a stronger kind of confidence or faith. We see that we're actually capable of putting these teachings into practice in our lives and in a way that's really deeply personally meaningful. And, and we start to know the way more for ourselves. We're not relying on the strength of anyone else's conviction. That's not what we turn to. And we start to see that the teachings that we've heard and, and often we've heard them over and over, 
have moved from something that is maybe more an idea or a theoretical understanding that um, they've become practical and personal in our lives. You know, we hear the same things over and we start to see that our experience has lining up and it, and it starts to be verified in our hearts, directly in our lives. Maybe in a deceptively simple kind of way. You know, we hear, we hear the teachings on impermanence over and over again. All things are impermanent. That which is subject to arising is subject to passing away. Teachers are constantly saying this. And we start to notice that there's some deep, more intuitive understanding of this that's starting to inform our lives and starting to transform our lives. Maybe very subtly, but it's true and real. And subtle, little changes are a lot. Something subtle is not little. And it's gone beyond uh, just an, an intellectual appreciation in the, in the words or the concept or the idea. It's deeper than that. We see that when we try to hold on to any part of the changing flow of experience, that we're just creating problems. We're setting ourselves up for suffering. We start to see that that letting go does happen at least once in a while, letting things be. We don't have to latch on to any of it. We see that there's um, a way that this is, is real in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts. We see that if we're willing to sit with the truth of change, that we aren't struggling and fighting with it so much, at least some of the time. And we connect with a deeper understanding of this truth, the rhythms of change that hold and inform all things, all of life. And so we start to see that wisdom does actually arise, that it has come, that with patience and steady, persistent, balanced effort, that understanding does come. And, and when, when this happens, when we start to see in this way, then, then it's not so tender, this more verified kind of confidence or faith. It can't be taken away or easily shaken. And even if we lose sight of it for a time, we can reconnect with it. It's there to remember and we can bring it back. We can allow it to flower forth again. And we start to know the inner terrain of the mind and heart. You notice this, we start to become very intimate with the inner terrain of our own mind and heart. And we spend all day checking it out. And it's not that we see this, we see a lot of very similar things, not the same things, but we get a deep intimacy with that. We see ways and times and places that we get caught. We see when we're vulnerable and we also see when we're strong and, and we start to live from our strength more and more, to call it forth, to call forth what we really know for ourselves to be true. And this kind of verified faith isn't easily shaken by uh, the winds of change or by what others might say. It's not a so easily assailed because we start to know the way for ourselves, at least in moments. We start to see the way to the end of suffering. And our confidence grows and we start to trust awareness more and more. We see that awareness can hold anything that arises and we start to uh, touch a kind of deep truth, confidence in the heart that's always been there, a voice of wisdom that arises. We listen to, we can trust a place inside that already knows the truth. And so this kind of verified faith then points to a kind of unshakable faith and confidence, trust. We start to touch the deepest truths of life very directly in our own mind and heart. And, and then there's nothing that arises internally or externally that really is capable of giving rise to any real doubt. 
And there's an understanding that comes to us that it's a long path. We see the power of habits and conditioning and we, we know that delusion and is, that this is gradually diminished, the power of this in our lives. It doesn't happen overnight. This process of untangling the tangle takes time and it happens on its own schedule. But our faith in the trajectory of the path is firm and strong. And we see that at least more and more of the time, at times our heart and mind start to come into alignment with these deeper truths that we started to see, to touch. We start to touch a a deeper balance of mind that can ride the changes the ups and downs, and there's a deep kind of stillness or silence that begins to emerge. It points towards the possibility of the deepest happiness, the happiness of peace, the ultimate trajectory, direction of the path. And this becomes the basis for our faith, the direction of this, of our aspiration. There's a a lovely book, Breath by Breath, by uh, Larry Rosenberg, who's the the founder of the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. Speaks to this idea of stillness or silence. He speaks about silence. I wanted to end with this, a little bit of a reflection on this. He says, at the heart of our practice, behind everything else, surrounded by everything else, within everything else is silence. Enlightenment has been called the great silence. And he goes on to say, this silence is extremely shy. It appears when it wants to and it comes only to those who love it for itself. It doesn't respond to calculation, grasping or demands. And it won't respond if you have designs on it or if there is something you want to do with it. It also doesn't respond to commands. You can no more command silence than you can can command someone to love you. And so we start to touch this deep silence or stillness. We could see it as as the way uh, in this quotation he said, it's behind everything, surrounded by everything, within everything. We could say it exists within and in a way beneath the dance of life and all of the motion of life. And, and it's not a stillness or silence that's born of disconnection or denial or, or anything like that, or separation from the movement of life, but it's born of this deep intimacy, an intimacy with all things. Sometimes one, somewhere someone said, uh, awakening is intimacy with everything. So it's this connection with life, with the dance of life and the movement of that. It's not separate from that, but it's not affected by it. You could see it as the the stillness or calm of the ocean beneath the waves. The storms can rage on the surface, but beneath that there's a stillness. It's always there. And it's not separate from it, but it's also not affected by it. So I'll end this evening with uh, an excerpt from a beautiful poem, uh, part of the Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot. This is a short excerpt from Bernd Norton. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered. Neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where, and I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time.
the inner freedom from the practical desire, the release from action and suffering, release from the inner and the outer compulsion, yet surrounded by a grace of sense, a white light still and moving. So let's just keep sitting in this stillness and silence for a few moments. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. And uh, some walking now. The chanting at nine, please come if you have the energy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.